Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 6th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we have Pastor Mark and his wife Debbie, Pastor Mark Downey and his wife Debbie here in our home. And Mark and I are going to present a discussion, and we will have some callers in the second hour. The discussion, the discussion is Christian identity vision. What we should see is the purpose and the objective of our Christian identity message. Hello, Mark. Thank you for being here. Hi, Bill. Good to be here. If I may open with a prayer, let us pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this time to share the good news of Christian identity, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. May the conversations and discussions of all who participate tonight be for the edification and blessing of the listeners and those who have ears to hear the program later on. Grant us an understanding of thy will and purposes for the white race, and to discern the proper destiny of those who would destroy us. Help Jacob Israel in this time of worldwide troubles, awaken to the importance of repentance and being obedient unto the word of truth. May we grow in grace to be that remnant that plants the seed and sets the example Amen. Praise Christ. Well, if I may just clarify one thing from last night's program, uh, <laughs> Bill said that they were partying with the Downies. And just so nobody misconstrues or misinterprets what's meant by partying, uh, we are having a joyous communion of good Christian fellowship. And a truly blessed friendship as we vacation in Florida. So thank you for um, your hospitality, Bill. We're enjoying Florida immensely. Well, I didn't think anybody pictured a house full of hippies and beer. <laughs> there are no bongo players. Here I tonight. pray. Well, well, what do we have? What, what do we have as our Christian identity vision? Where do we see? Christian identity going? What is our purpose? What is our goal? I mean, of course, our goal is to establish the kingdom of heaven. We know that ultimately that won't be done without Yahshua Christ. But if we don't know where we're going, we sure as hell aren't going to know how to get there. Right. And um, I think when we uh, initiated what were we going to talk about uh, tonight, uh, a week or so ago, uh, I had a conversation with a fellow that's been in Christian identity for a long time, as are many others, uh, who wasn't really up to speed in some of the um, really progressive uh, theology that you've been presenting uh, to our community uh, for several years now. And um, in this year of the Lord, 2016, I have to ask, every year I ask, what is the vision of Christian identity? What will it take to restore us as a movement, a movement of God, uh, 
because as you correctly stated some time ago, several years ago, actually, that um, we're not really a movement ex with the exception of all these pet doctrines and denominations within Christian identity that uh, are moving in different directions. And um, I think what we want is a vision that's a plan with a purpose, that's aligned with the divine purpose. And as you stated last night in your program, we're going to be discussing objectives, which is very similar to a vision, um, which is the object of our focus tonight. Well, what is our focus? It, it always has been race and racial discernments. But as Christian identity matures in Christ, the nature of our relationship with God and each other comes into focus and how we, the people of God, are to deal with non-Israelites. But first we have to educate our people to know that they are not us and we are not them. In fact, the difference is between created beings and things that were not created by God, which I know is a concept that's difficult for some people to understand. But what he, call, what he created, he called good. Therefore, what he did not create can only be evil or other similar descriptions. Well, Christ said it's only God that defines what is good, basically, when he even wondered why somebody would call him good. And as I think you stated last night, uh, the various worms, uh, canker worms, palmer worms, etc., um, the same person that I had a discussion with wanted, well, what's the purpose of the other races or what I prefer to call the racial alien? And it's really God's army, as described with these various worms, to punish uh, an apostate Israel. They're somewhat of a rod of chastisement. And what we're disobeying is a very simple divine law found in Exodus 23:33, that they, the racial aliens, shall not dwell in thy land. Uh, but, of course, we see throughout history that they have dwelt among Israelites. And all kinds of problems always ensue from that predicament. That there's a um, that there's an underlying theme in the Bible. It's a thread throughout biblical history, where it's fully evident that Yahweh takes the ser the sins and errors of man and uses them for His own purposes to affect something good. So we see the Assyrian Empire, which was an Adamic empire of a, a, a people from a race kindred to Israel, but they were given over to paganism, they became pagan, that they became um, subverted by the enemies of God, by those satanic forces, yet Yahweh used Assyria as the rod of his anger, as it says in Isaiah, in order to chastise the children of Israel. And, according to the same word of Isaiah, he destroyed Assyria after he used them to chastise the children of Israel. The same pattern 
was put into effect in ancient Babylon, another Adamic empire, another kindred race to the children of Israel that had been subverted by Satan, by the satanic forces, gone over to paganism, and Yahweh used them to punish the children of Judah and to bring them into captivity. And after they did that, he destroyed the Babylonians. Today, we have a fulfillment of prophecy very clear in the prophet Joel, in the prophet Ezekiel, where all of these aliens are being allowed to dwell in Christian nations to chastise the children of Israel once again, and Yahweh will destroy them as well after the chastisement is completed. And I might add that by this recurrence of divine cause and effect, their purpose, the, the racial alien, uh, as far as God is concerned, will come to an end. This is not something that will just be forever. And throughout the Bible, their end is inevitable. And that's what we want to touch on tonight. But in the meantime, within our movement, even though it may be somewhat stagnant, we can't afford to have messengers with one foot in Christian identity and the other foot stuck in what we might call mongrel churchianity, trying to, to reach the rest of our people with a type of universalist nomenclature. We need to take charge of our own language that we use in Christian identity to persuade our fellow white man. Well, well, let's talk a little bit more about the beginning. In the Bible, there are two trees right at the beginning. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a tree that, that was once on the side of good that came to know evil. And there's the tree of life. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. The tree of life is really the Adamic race, the race of God. That tree of life has 12 manner of fruits in the Revelation in chapter 22, describing the race of God manifest in the children of Israel who are a part of that Adamic race, and they were the part that Yahweh God had chosen to carry out his will in the world out of the whole rest of the, of the tree of life. So we have two trees opposed to each other. We have a corrupt tree and a good tree. And all throughout all of the parables of the New Testament, we have sheep and goats, wheat and tares, good fish and bad fish. And like you said, everything in the creation of God was good. So where did these bad fish come from? They must be part of this corruption, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are no records of any creation of any of the non-Adamic races in Scripture. Nothing. There's no record of it. If the Bible is the Word of God, he did not create these other races because we have other races in the New Testament that are bad. How are they bad? God couldn't have created them. Everything he created was good. 
So we have our race diametrically opposed to all of these other races, which are not listed in the creation of God. The only thing that's biblical, that's scriptural, it's right in Revelation chapter 12. The only thing that's scriptural that explains how the other races may have come to be is the fall of the angels and the corruption and the rebellion, however you want to envision that, the rebellion that they perpetrated against God. And that had to happen before our race was put here. That's why we have these so-called pre-Adamic people. That's why we have this fossil record of things that we cannot explain. We can't explain it in our history. Science doesn't explain it appropriately, that they try to use this genetic um, gobbledygook about permutations and, and, and things that they make up that they just fabricate to prove evolution. But this planet has a long history before our race was put here, and this Bible is only the history pertaining to our race from the time it was put here. Right. Genesis 5.1 is, uh, this is the book of the generations of Adam, not pre-Adamites. And, uh, or non-Adamites. The racial aliens. <laughs> and, you know, it's not really, I'm not really that much concerned about their origins. Well, well other, right, except the, that their origin is not the Bible. Other than the fact that they are not us and we are not them. Right. The disparity in thinking between uh, ancient Adamites and the modern white man is about as different as night and day. Because in recent times, the last 100 years, there has been an onslaught of this uh, racial reconciliation to change the thinking of white man in how they regard these other aliens that live amongst us. All oh, right. The enemies of Christ have loaded us, loaded us up with propaganda about these other races. And, and that contamination of... Uh, leeches into Christian identity. It is in it, it is it, it's replete in Christian identity because everybody in Christian identity, especially all of the early teachers, that they were already established and educated in as Baptist preachers, as as Protestant preachers, as Anglican preachers, as whatever, Lutheran preachers. They had all this baggage that they brought with them into Christian identity. They had all these preconceptions that they learned in their seminaries and Bible schools about what they thought the Bible said about the other races that just simply isn't true. Well, this is so important that this is why I wanted to talk about it tonight, because uh, there are some people that just aren't up to speed uh, with this concept. And last year, I've been giving sermons from 2015 uh, based on on this revelation that, I, a double revelation that we'll be talking about tonight from you and uh, Clifton Emmeheiser that non-whites were not created by God and that they will eventually perish totally from the earth. And that's because the word of God says so. Um, and, and this is a paradigm shift for Christian identity. We have a secular racial consciousness, but that's not enough. We need the spiritual 
objectives to understand really the meaning of life. Who are we? Where are we going? And what's preventing us from moving forward? It really is a time to move to the next level for Christian identity to answer these questions because there are several impediments that we are obligated, we are duty-bound to overcome. Theology is the study of the Word of God. And if we want to answer the questions about the other races, because this question comes up all the time. I don't know why people, when they, when they come to the discovery of their own Christian identity, so many people are immediately concerned about the other races. Oh, what about those black people? Oh, what about those Mexicans? And, and usually those people have some kind of emotional attachment to somebody from one of the other races, like they got little niglet grandchildren or nephews or nieces. Well, when you come to learn your, your identity and, and the wonder of covenant theology, the last thing you should be concerned about is the other races. They simply aren't included in the equation. If theology is the study of the word of God, if you want to find the theology of Christ, you better go study that word of that God, that Father in heaven that he constantly spoke of. So let's see what the Old Testament says about the other races. And if we reject that, we're in essence rejecting Christ. Well, that really is one of the most frequently asked questions with, uh, with new people that, that come into Christian identity, what about the other races? And um, <clears throat> when, when you first presented this, this idea that, uh, and it's really a very simple uh, idea to understand, that these racial aliens were not created by God. Their origin is really neither here nor there. But when God created everything, he said it was good. Right. Now, that can be contrasted to the opposite of good as evil. And for some reason, these non-Israelites, non-Adamic peoples mentioned uh, expansively throughout Scripture are always referred to as evil, wicked, bad. It's always a negative connotation. No hope for them, no salvation. They're never good. They're never offered anything from God. They're never offered redemption. They're never offered to be a part of his kingdom. The children of Israel are commanded to be a separate people. And so, therefore, it's, it's a logical conclusion to say that uh, they, they cannot come under the, the same auspices that our race does in the word of God. Once we realize that these other, these other races are permanently and irretrievably bad, how could we imagine they were made by God if everything Yahweh made was good? I've said for years that, and this was, you know, 100 years ago, people didn't ask, well, what about the salvation of other races. It wasn't even a consideration. But 
a very common um, sentiment about uh, blacks, especially in America, was that when they misbehaved, they didn't know their place. And by the same token, Israelites today don't know their place in relationship to God. And if we don't know our relationship with God, then how can these subhumans know their relationship with us? Well, in Genesis chapter 9, Noah is told that all of the beasts of the field would be in fear of him. And that was a promise to Noah. If we, Noah knew his relationship with God. He was just saved through that, that flood. He was a man perfect in his generations, and he was promised that all of the other creatures and beasts would be in fear of him. If you want to wonder, I mean, a lot of Christian identity pastors like to classify these other races as the beasts or the beasts of the field. There's nowhere where the law of God is for the beasts or where the children of Israel are told to bring the law of God to the beasts. The children of Israel are only told in Genesis chapter 9 that they, hearkening to the word of God, all of the other beasts would be in fear of them, in dread of them. That's the way we should look. When we follow God, we should expect the other races to be in fear of us and in dread of us, and that's all we should expect from them. I think that's clearly specified in Psalms 147, 19, and 20, I think, where uh, the laws and statutes were given only to Jacob Israel. It says the other people uh, have not received them, nor do they know them. Not even the other Adamic nations. Because Yahweh let, as Paul explains later, Yahweh let those nations go their own way. He gave them up to the world to see if they would follow after him, and they didn't. He only chose Abraham. We have to put this in historical perspective. The call of Abraham is at least 3,200 years after the flood of Noah. And all of those other nations, even Abraham's fathers, had already gone off into paganism, had already followed after the world and, and the, the sin in the world. So Abraham alone was chosen out of that. And because of Abraham's faith, his offspring were given special blessings and a special relationship with God. And future history, the history of the Adamic race, would be played out through his offspring. All those nations that the psalm says did not receive the law of God were white nations. They couldn't, they weren't even good enough. So Yahweh not only had no concern for the other races, he had no concern for most of the white race. I think, Bill, it might behoove us to uh, understand what is implied by evil. I know that's that's hard for some people to um, uh, understand the reality of in, in today's uh, massive propaganda that... Uh, uh, although I think that's maybe changing a little, where Dr. Huckabee is now uh, a rapist who uh, drugged his victims before uh, he had his way with them, which is more indicative of the uh, the true nature of the beast than uh, the, the fantasy propaganda that's put out there. But 
Uh, from Strong's concordance, we can understand evil to be something that breaks in pieces. It's also associated with corruption or uh, that which rots or spoils. And I think that's why we have the law of Exodus 23.33, is because if they're not given the law, then they're a lawless uh, type of alien in our midst. And their lawlessness will resonate with those that do have the law. And uh, the, the continuation of, of that verse says they will become a snare to you and you will depart from God. And that's the real danger of being too familiar with the racial alien thinking they're somewhat similar to us when they are indeed a, not only just um, a pedestrian type of understanding of evil, but but something that destroys the spirit of the, the spirit of Yahweh. The spirit of God was put into the Edenic man, and where Paul of Tarsus says that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, he's true. Because the Adamic man has two natures, the, the carnal, fleshly nature, but he also has that spirit from God. And when we follow the spirit, we can understand and keep the law of God, because the law is spiritual. The other races don't have that spirit. That's why the law was never written in their hearts. There is absolutely no hope for them to ever be able to follow the law of God. The only time the other races comply with our law, is under the threat of force. That's why the, the niggers called the law the man. And the man to them was the law. The nigger was telling the truth. The nigger knew more in the 50s and 60s when he used terms like the man to the law. He knew more about the nature of the white race versus his own nature than white people did. He knew his place. Right. Because... He understood and equated law with what the white man, and they still do to a great degree. And they're seeking to overthrow the white man, so they're seeking to get out from under the law. They don't want to be judged by our law because their hearts have a different law. They are beasts. They only know the law of the jungle. So the only way to ever get the other races to comply with our law is by the threat of force. And... Nothing else will keep them in line with the law. Where our race naturally gravitates towards law and order and, and respect for one another and love for God. That breath of life that was breathed into the nostrils of Adam is literally the spirit of God, which gives us the wherewithal to understand that divine word, that that others that don't have that that life in them, that spiritual life, it's impossible for them to discern what the truth of their place on earth is. Even the satanic Jews that claim to have the law, they claim to know the law, they claim to be experts in law, and they have an entire volume of books with nothing but filled with nothing but arguments as to how to get around the law. It gives us the motivation to obey God. 
And thereby lies the dilemma that if that law is dormant in our heart, which is the new covenant, that was the difference after Christ laid down his life for his people, that he placed the law in our hearts and minds. And the enemy has done everything within their means to nullify that consciousness, and that includes racial consciousness, which the racial laws of God are very much a part of. The, the bottom line is this. Yahweh created mankind, and Yahweh created his law, and he understands that the software that he created, which is the law, will run on that hardware he created, which is the Adamic man. That software wasn't meant for any other creature. And the entire law is only constructed for the Adamic man. The other races are outside of it, that there, there's no record of their creation by God, and the only law they have is the law of the, of, of the beast in the jungle, where, where the strong is always in the right. Unfortunately, it seems the enemy knows this cause and effect better than our own people. Absolutely. But that's why Peter said that they're nothing but natural brute beasts yes. made to be taken and destroyed. We'll get to that verse in a minute. Um, but we were discussing the, uh, it reminded me of the doctrine of Balaam in Revelation, where <clears throat> it's not really explained that much other than in the apocryphal, where, apocrypha, where, um, the racial aliens would gussy up their women to entice the Israelite men to right. miscegenate. The, the, the other races, the enemies of God, understand that if they could reach us through our base fleshly lusts, that that way they could take the weak from among us and pull us away from the law of our God through the desire to fulfill those base sex fleshly lusts, especially through sex. And, and that's the whole lesson behind the corruption of Israel with the daughters of Moab in Numbers chapter 24. Why do they need bullets when they got miniskirts? Right. And, and the same thing today. It, it's the same thing today. Well, this leads us into <clears throat> the future of, of these tempters of our race uh, and what God has planned for them. Now, since you've introduced this revelatory concept, which I think is a big boom for Christian identity in raising the racial consciousness. And, and I must say that Clifton Emmeheiser gets some credit, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but we've been nicknamed the exterminationist. Right. And I guess for lack of a, a better term, uh, we will gladly wear that as a badge of honor because, after all, uh, we can find many instances where that's exactly what God did in the Old Testament. He exterminated entire populations. Right. And it's like there's this cognitive dissonance among churchianity today that says, well, 
the Old Testament God isn't the same as the New Testament God. Even though Christ said, I came not to destroy the law or the prophets. Well, well, that's that, that Judeo-Christian idea that the Old Testament God and the New Testament gods are different is a Jewish idea. They deny the divinity of Christ. They, these, these Judeo-Christians, these Judaized Christians, and they're thinking that Jesus is a different God because they do not understand the concept that God can come as a member of his own creation in the body of a man. They can't understand that. The fact that Christianity has been hyphenated with another religion should raise all kinds of red flags. If right. you pardon the pun of Esau, Edom, Edom meaning red. Abraham wasn't a Jew. The word Jew doesn't appear until 2 Kings 16. And, and even then it doesn't belong there. The word doesn't belong. It's Judah. It doesn't belong there. The idea of Judeo-Christian is an oxymoron because, all right, let's take Acts 26, Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. Paul of Tarsus said, the promise of the promises of God were for our 12 tribes, and they, meaning the Jews, are fighting against that promise. So Paul of Tarsus saw the 12 tribes and the Jews as two different parties. Well, um, <clears throat> the Judeo-Christians just will not ask the question or must not have a deep enough interest to know what God thinks about things. Why would God have the Israelites exterminate an entire group of people, women and children included? As we look at different issues such as this one, we have to remember, and most of churchianity, that they've, they've forgotten, rather than remembering that God's ways are not our ways or his thoughts are not our thoughts. So we have to be willing to trust God and have faith in him, even when we might not at first understand uh, his ways in doing things. Or in, in regards to uh, the Canaanites, God commanded Israel, quote, in the cities of the nations of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. And you will sin against the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 20, 16, and 18. And just prior to those verses, if we... Go to verse 3 and 4. It's important, important to note. And shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, you approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. Fear not and do not tremble. Neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight. 
for you against your enemies to save you. That sounds very similar to the two types of personalities found in Luke that you were talking about last night. Um, <clears throat> in uh, Luke 21, 26, men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then if you drop down, um, and I guess you were commenting on uh, Bertrand Compare. In verse 28, it says, And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, or your redemption draweth near. Well, well, right. It's only the other races that should fear the wrath of God. The white race, the Christians, should never fear the wrath of God. And we would expect, or we would at least find it ideal, that all white people were Christians, because at one time, not too long ago, that was true. Even though many of them were unlearned and marginal Christians, all white people were Christians, and all white people did have the opportunity to hear those words of, of Christ that you just read. Mm -hmm. They were never intended for the other races. It's only these last couple of hundred years that first the Jesuits and then some of the Protestant denominations following the Jesuits promoted this idea to bring Christianity to the other races. Right. The uh, misbegotten regurgitation of the Great Commission. <laughs> well, well, right. It was all... It was it already was done, done deal. It was a front for, for Roman Catholic imperialism. Well, unfortunately, our ancestors failed in uh, this mission in Canaan, and exactly what God said would happen, and, and it occurred. But God did not order the extermination of these people just to be a cruel, sadistic God. But here we get into the, this is the way God's thinking, is to prevent an even greater evil. If we understand evil, as I mentioned previously, the things that rot and spoil our race uh, from occurring in the future. Probably one of the most difficult parts of these commands from God is that God ordered the death of children and infants as well. Well, why would God order the death of innocent children? Well, for one thing, Canaanite children were not innocent. As we can read in um, Psalms um, 58, 58, um, 3 and 4 here. <clears throat> which says the wicked, as we previously mentioned, the, the evil, the wicked, all these negative connotations are not talking about our people, but the racial alien. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. Well, we understand that we understand the error of Balaam 
when we go back and look at Numbers chapter 24, and Paul of Tarsus referred to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Paul of Tarsus said, do not commit fornication as your ancestors committed fornication. So we go to Revelation chapter 2, and in Revelation chapter 2, Christ speaks against those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught the children of Israel to commit idolatry and to commit fornication. And that's what the children of Israel did when they worshipped the gods of Moab at Baal Peor. They joined themselves to the daughters of Moab, not to the gods of Moab. They joined themselves to the daughters of Moab. They race mixed with the Moabites, and that was considered fornication by Paul of Tarsus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 2. We go to Revelation chapter 20, and it speaks about Jezebel, and Jesus Christ says that she taught his servants to commit fornication so he will kill her children with death, meaning the results of that fornication that she taught the children of Israel to commit. He will kill the children, just like Yahweh all the way back in Exodus chapter 23, or wherever Mark's reading from, said, kill the children. And uh, here's the downside to compound that with uh, fornication is that these children, having been spared, would likely grow up as adherents to the same evil religions and practices of their parents. Well, they don't have the law of God. They're not of the race of Adam. They're not of the children of Israel. They don't have that law. And these children so would naturally have grown up resentful of the Israelites who partially killed off their their culture and later sought to avenge the unjust treatment of their parents. In fact, Jews are probably the most resentful people on the face of the earth. And one of their models is never forgive, never forget. But they're still pushing the Holocaust. <laughs> and will until that final day when they become ashes on the soles of our feet. You know, in the Talmud, we read about how they really feel about Anglo-Saxon rooted Christianity. If I may quote, it says, let there be no hope for the Christians. May they be swiftly cut down, doomed and uprooted, end quote. That's from the Burkat Hamanin. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's a very well-known portion of the Talmud to Jews. A very common thread interwoven throughout the Talmud is stated by Rabbi Simon ben Yohai in the Jewish Encyclopedia, where he says, quote, the best among the Gentiles deserves to be killed, end quote. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote about this Jewish cult sacrificing humans to their devil god Moloch. When Christ said, your father was a murderer from the beginning, he was referencing these Jews to their god Moloch in the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, a secret document exposing the Jewish conspiracy. Protocol number 11 states, quote, the goyim, a derogatory term for white Christians, 
are a flock of sheep and we are the wolves. And you know what happens when wolves get hold of the flock, end quote. The Talmud teaches that wherever it's possible, a Jew should kill Christians and do so without mercy. Quote, the life of a goy and all his physical powers belong to the Jew, end quote. Even Christians who read the Jews' filthy Talmud are slated for death. There's a rabbi, Jochanan, who says, quote, a goy who pries into the law is guilty of death. Of course, the, the Talmud is not the law, it's the circumvention of Mosaic law. It, it exists, so it exists so that Jews could have reasons for getting around the law while still claiming to be Israelites. In the Zohar, it says, quote, the people of the earth, meaning non-Jews, are idolaters. And it's been written about them, let them be wiped off the face of the earth, end quote. Now, these rabbinic writings are not isolated aberrations, but rather they are the definitive norm of Jewish thought. Now, the aforementioned begs the question, why haven't Messianic Jews been banned from the state of Israeli? Why do they get carte blanche to conduct guided tours of the so-called holy lands? Why haven't Jew-turned-Christians been assassinated by Jewish snipers? I think it's because they always refer to Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah. And that would make their Yeshua a mongrel like them. And they really have not forsaken or abandoned an antichrist Jewish culture. It's a counterfeit Christianity that is friendly to the world, but hostile to the word of God. They remain loyal, even though they call themselves Christians. They remain loyal to Judaism, and therefore do not incur the wrath of the Sanhedrin, which was reestablished in 2004, now being the highest tribunal in the state of Israeli and their religion after a 1,600-year absence. Surely the highest authority in the land would enforce the dreaded curse of the Burkak Hamanan. May the Christians be cut down. You know, it's not just an excommunication, it's violence. Ingrained into the Jewish soul is the hostile thought that there is no hope for Jews converting to Christianity who are worthy of extermination for engaging in idolatry. Judaism is its not really even a religion. It's the greatest mafia of all criminal enterprises. And they, even in their own thinking, think there are some Jews who are expendable. Now, if you ever run into one of these Messianic Jews, ask them about the Mishpuka, which is the secret crime family of Jewry, which comprises attorneys, thousands, tens of thousands of attorneys, for all I know, crisis actors, which we see in a lot of these black flag operations, and a constant type of Jonathan Pollard espionage. As with child ritual murder, Judaism's legion of liars brazenly deny that any such thing exists. 
However, in revisionist history, newsletter number 70, Michael Hoffman quotes Professor Ruth Langer of Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, making a monumental admission that, quote, most of the Christian accusations about the Burkak Hamanan were not wrong, end quote. Well, well, Jews have Judeo-Christians pulled by the nose and deceived. It's that simple. And, and, and they promote egalitarianism in Judeo-Christian churches. That they, it, it's they who are at the vanguard of persuading Christians to, ex- white Christians, to accept these non-white races. Well, here's a question. How, then, will white people ever know the vital and critical parables of Christ? The answer is the sower sows the word, Mark 4.14. The good farmer, here's a parallel, thought the good farmer plants the organic heirloom seed in good ground if he wants a good crop. And the bad farmer, the evil sower, plants adulterated hybrid seed in bad ground. And the crop may have the appearance of being good, an angel of light, but it is still an abomination to God. One point we should observe is that farmers don't throw their seed in the ditch or on rocks or amongst thorns. By the same token, the allegory is for us not to broadcast the racial message of the Gospels in worthless places or on hardened hearts or amongst the racial alien. The non-whites of the world the Bible are often referred to as thorns, such as Ezekiel 28:24, which says, quote, No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbors who are painful briars and sharp thorns, for then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord, end quote. Their future extermination was, <laughs> went over the heads of the disciples, as it does most good-intentioned students of the word today. There was a pause as Jesus was giving his parables to the disciples because they didn't get it. Why was he speaking in these fictional stories? And there we have the confirmation from Christ himself that his message is not for the racial alien. It was for Israel. That is, quote, but to them it is not given, Matthew 13, 12. He went further in the next verse, quote, For whoever has, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whoever has not, from him shall be taken away, even that he has, end quote. He was speaking racially. Whoever has the true grace of God implanted in their heart and mind shall grow and even more knowledge and understanding of Christ. And that's what we want for Christian identity today in this soon awakened paradigm that I hope for. Part of, I'm sorry, part of the punishment of Adam when he fell from the grace of God in Genesis chapter 3 was that the ground that he worked, which, which is representative of a culture, it's more than just a garden, would bring forth thorns and thistles. And that's talking racially. That's part of our punishment for our fall from the grace of God, our fall away from God. 
is that what, when, when, when we grew as a society, we would be infiltrated with these thorns and thistles. And the Canaanites, who had race mixed with other peoples, the Rephane, the Canaanites, they were co- considered to be thorns and, and pricks, or, or thorns and thistles. Mm-hmm. They were thorns and pricks. There will be thorns in your eyes and pricks in your side. And Christ told his apostles concerning the spread of the gospel that he who is not gathering with me scatters because we don't gather grapes from thorns and figs from thistles. Well, I love the analogy because, as most gardeners know, you have to weed uh, in your garden for your crop to um, have a good crop. Right. Well, you don't take the weeds and put them into the food basket. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, New Covenant as with all the covenants, was the law of God and his grace written exclusively for only one race of people. Quote, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That is to the exclusive uh, exclusion of, of other racial aliens. And he didn't put church law into the heads of a multicultural congregation. If I was to walk into one of those places today preaching what we've been saying here this evening, I'd probably be thrown out on my ear. And if I persisted proselytizing the field or the world of universalism, it would become very dangerous to be right when all of their church Deacons and governors are so very wrong. But even these church clowns, um, as Charles Spurgeon uh, called them over a hundred years ago, uh, which has come to pass today, who have so little to teach, even a smattering of understanding a child Sunday school lesson will be taken away from them. And we can certainly witness their glaring foolishness when confronting them with Scripture. We hear it all the time amongst the brethren of uh, the incapacity of these supposed uh, church leaders. uh, When confronted with startling passages that they've never really thought about, you get the the deer-in-the-headlights look. Until our kindred can accept the key to unlock the Bible, which is Christian identity, they will remain lost sheep. I think time is maybe running out for white Christians to separate themselves from the body of Judas and the church of universalism. When, when When this prophecy comes to pass, the church world will be in a state of shock because finally it will be obvious that their temple, the synagogue of Satan, had no glory in it, never did. That the brightness of the Lord's second coming is all about extermination. The enemy will never take the kingdom of God, no matter how much violence and pain it inflicts. But because of all these sufferings the enemy brings, 
their ultimate extermination is justified and certain. Quote, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 11:15. And then, quote, The heathen were filled with rage and your wrath. God's wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your authority, the great and the small. And get this, to destroy those destroying the earth. Revelation 8, 11, 18. And how could anybody fear his authority if they were never given his law? And if he only knew the children of Israel amongst all the families of the earth, and how could he, how could they claim to know him if he chooses us and we don't choose him? And he has only chosen the children of Israel. And he never gave his laws to any other nation. Who are the saints but the set-apart people of the Old Testament? All of these, these statements in the Revelation can only pertain to the children of Israel of the promises to Abraham. The kingdoms of the whole earth have become his kingdoms because the children of Abraham were to become many kingdoms and many nations and they were to inherit they are promised to inherit all of the kingdoms of the earth well, I think that last phrase to destroy those destroying the earth encapsulates what we're talking about this evening uh, when my friend asked me Mark where are you getting all these ideas uh, there it is, right there in 11, Revelation eleven eighteen, to destroy those destroying the earth. And it, it just, I can understand now what it means for those who have eyes to see, those with ears to hear. The Bible is just chock full of these, these similar uh, statements to the effect of those being destroyed. Well, now, Let's read Jeremiah chapter 30 and, and let's read Jeremiah chapter 30. And if we believe this, then we have to be exterminationists. Yahweh, you, you read some passages from the Talmud that proves that Satan is an exterminationist. The Jews are Satan. They're Satan because the word Satan means adversary. They are the adversaries of Christ. The Jews are the synagogue of Satan. Their Talmud proves that Satan is an exterminationist. The only hope that we have is that Yahweh is an exterminationist. Precisely. And God says in Jeremiah chapter 30, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee. Now, the children of Israel are not yet gathered. The children of Israel are still scattered. So wherever the children of Israel are, Yahweh says he will make a full end 
of all of those people groups, of all of those nations. So at the end, when this promise is fulfilled and it's repeated in Jeremiah chapter 46, we're going to see only the kingdoms of our God, which are those very kingdoms promised of Abraham's seed. That's all that's left. If a full end is made of all other nations. Well, Bill, I think we've made a succinct uh, presentation this evening. And I see a memo from our lovely board director here that um, we might want to take some calls. Yes, we're going to get a few people on the line and take some calls and but we'll probably have a part two of this presentation, <laughs> but I don't do anything in one part. <laughs> Never works out that way. But this will probably take me a minute if, if you have anything to say before I get anybody on the line. Well, there are so many uh, verses uh, to this effect. Uh, Malachi 4.3 and ye shall tread down the wicked. And that's, again, talking about those not created by God. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day that I shall do that. If, if there's mercy for the children of Israel, then none of the children of Israel can be considered the wicked. If Christ saved us from our sins, then and, and all Israel will be saved, then none of us can be, quote, unquote, the wicked. The wicked has to be something. Your call else. has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Nine one. I might add, being got a little dead air here, uh, that really universal universalism is on trial here, not Christian identity. Because it's it's bleeding the white race with a thousand cuts of political correctness, hate speech, racism, whatever you want to call it. And it's whittling away at the intent of very biblical absolutes and slicing and dicing good and evil so that it's to be indistinguishable pablum. The, um, the Bible again, records entire populations being destroyed by the hand of God. So let's not fool ourselves that extermination is not a biblical reality. And it's not for us to judge God, but for God to judge everything from beginning to end. Jesus made a prophecy against Jerusalem, and in 70 A.D., over a million Jews were killed. And the psychology today is such that any sort of demographic apocalypse is just unimaginable. Do we have a caller? Yes, we do. Hello, Seth. Good evening. Good evening. Let me turn your volume up here a minute so that hopefully Mark can hear you. All right. How are you? What 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 can we what what can we talk about? Doing well. Glad to be discussing this. I've been taking quite a bit of notes tonight. A lot of good material that's been discussed, and I think the overall 
notion of the message here tonight is that the purpose of our Christian identity message, or rather Christ's message in general, it's simple. It's to facilitate the preparation of the kingdom of God. That's the bottom line. Everything we do must go toward that end. We must glorify Christ and build what he has planned for us. Amen. Uh, it's Just listening to this, it, it reminded me so clearly that history frequently repeats itself, at least until the entirety of the revelation is fulfilled. And in that vein, we're akin to John the Baptist prior to uh, the ministry of Christ. Uh, we're akin to John the Baptist in the modern era. We're just waiting for the second coming. And we are despised by a mixed multitude of modern Pharisees and unfortunately also some of our kin that have been deceived by these modern Pharisees. But we can only work to glorify Christ through our lives. We need to conduct ourselves in a Christ-like fashion amongst our brethren, uh, regardless of how in line with us they are or opposed. We still need to treat them as our brethren. But as we discussed a few weeks ago in the forums and as Bill discussed in his Ephesians series, uh, speaking the truth in love is not flowery words and allowing or conceding sinful actions. We need to be firm and heavy-handed with the way we deal with them. Uh, but in order to do that, we must love what Christ loves, hate what he hates, and understand his revealed plan for us regardless of how offensive insensitive or cruel it is perceived to be, and white men and women must correctly identify our race as the true Israel of Scripture if we are to effect our Father's will here. There is no white nationalist, there is no pagan, no atheist, none of the apathetic can truly work for him because they are not anchored by the truth. They will compromise with wickedness rather than sever the wicked from our midst. And all the platitude-spouting social justice cultists out there and their pet tares and mongrels just refuse to acknowledge that Christ's message is an exterminationist and racial message. And without that message, the white men and women that are outside of a, a firm foundation in Christian identity will fail in their trials time and time again. They have nothing to preserve. They have nothing to hope for. And they, the biggest one, I think, is the incorrect fear of our Father in their ignorance of the Scriptures, that all Israel shall be saved, as seen in Romans 11.26 and Isaiah 45-something, 17, I think. Uh, they're hooked on all these sound bites and prosperity gospels from apostate preachers that would rather read and dispense literature from other members of their satanic apostate cabal rather than read and understand the scriptures and couple it with honest supplication. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to get to 
uh, our brothers and sisters and even more difficult to get them to commit to building the kingdom because their premises and dogmatic outlooks are entirely wrong. I mean, you can shut them down very easily, but a bias, one form or another brought about, I don't know, by the apostate so-called fame or maybe your own familiarity with the person uh, you've known them for your whole lives and they tend to take what you have with more grains of salt than they would some stranger uh, that that often prevents them from being otherwise critical and rightly discerning i mean you can point out malachi 3 6 john twenty twenty eight, and to timothy 3 16 in that order for a very logical progression of how we exactly are to treat the scripture. I mean, God does not change. Thomas called Christ my Lord and my God, and all scripture is God-breathed. Therefore, the Old Testament is just as valid as the New Testament. You can't just pick and choose. You have to take it all within context, and they don't want to do that. Well, well that's the problem is uh, I believe that the denominational churches have caved in to the, the lies of the Jews and have been forced to portray this Jesus as a God other than the God of the Old Testament. That even though they'll profess that God came in the flesh as Jesus, they insist on imagining that Jesus has a different purpose and a different personality as that Old Testament God who was mean and warlike. But if you read Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 18, 19, and 20, you'll see that Jesus is the same as that Old Testament God. Without a doubt, they just refuse to go there. They want to see this lovey-dovey, hippie Jesus that loves everybody, and that makes the Jews happy in their claim to the Old Testament because the Jews don't have to confront Jesus, and that makes the Christians happy in their lovey-dovey New Testament Jesus because they don't have to cope with that mean Old Testament God. When in truth, it's the same consistent message from Genesis 1 through Revelation chapter 22. And you, I don't know if it's, uh, you referenced Isaiah 45, uh, Seth. I think you might have been thinking of the last verse, uh, 25, that says, In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. That certainly uh, doesn't get much clearer in the racial context when it says all seed. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of people like, like, like certain Chicago rabbis that pose as Christian identity pastors want to say, oh, no, that means all 12 tribes. But no, all the seed shall be justified. You don't have to justify a tribe if you're only taking certain members out of it. All the seed shall be justified means each and every single Israelite shall be, in spite of his sin, found to be righteous by God. Because the Apostle John says that if your seed is in you, you cannot sin. It's always interesting to watch the Judeo-Churchians squirm when you 
confront them with the the true racial message of scripture that is inherent in every single book of the Bible. And yet they won't squirm when they're actively doing things that Christ instructed us not to do. And then when you inform them that of exactly what you just said, that we are, are going to be covered because our seed abides within us. That is an amazing, to put it lightly, get out of jail free card. I mean, you can explain to people that are grieving over relatives that didn't believe in Jesus, that believe that their relatives are hellbound. You can explain to them that that's not the case. And they will be so elated to hear that. But when you juxtapose that with the rest of scripture, they immediately flip everything and they cannot abide any of it. They do not want to hear it. Well, we have worthy adversaries who have legions of change agents throughout the world today who think nothing of the truth. And all that really matters to them is the big lie that, you know, God loves everybody. And it's these right. little, little sound bites that uh, supplant the deeper meaning of the word of God. In, Whatever in the fills end, the coffers. In, in the end, it's not the desire of man, and it's not the doings of man that dictate what is going to survive and what is going to be destroyed. It's the sovereignty of God. And if God created the Adamic man to be immortal, as it says in the wisdom of Solomon chapter 2, and to be an image of his own eternity, then in spite of what the Adamic man does, he's going to be immortal and learn to live in obedience to God. That's the way he created us. That's the purpose he created us for. If any of us go into the lake of fire, then God failed. Now, just having an appreciation of, of what we've spoken of tonight, I can't think of a God who wouldn't exterminate the exterminators, who, will, who wouldn't destroy the destroyers. It wouldn't make much sense why he would allow that to just continue forever. Right, it's like a, a parent being accepting of the murder of his child. I mean, we see that because we are flawed people and we've been deceived for millennia now, but God is not flawed. He is perfect in all his ways, and he does want to revenge, and it's all upon our behalf. Love is not sloppy agape, as some people say. Right. It's, uh, it's keeping the commands of God. It's a higher order of responsibility than just mere affection. Right, but that does not serve the purposes of the international kike and its seemingly endless crusade to get people to shed morality and... Uh, engage in some disgusting multiracial orgy for all eternity, or at least until they can get everything that they want out of it, because they certainly won't last that long. Which is why we honestly can't say that there's anything good to report about the destiny of the wicked. 
there's nothing we can say that's going to happen to them that's good. If their creation is not explained in the creation of God, how could they be written into the book of life? It would there be a is no The word of God is the word of life. We're told that. The Bible is the book of life. The people written in the book of life are the people that God said that he created in the Bible. And if in the beginning there was the word, then we would it would have to be logically concluded that should these people have been his creation, they would have been in the book. But this has been around since the beginning. This was all foreknown. And there is still nothing. There are endless proofs in scripture that will discredit all these Judeo-Churchian arguments, but they don't want to hear it. They they are not honest, they are disingenuous, or they are afraid of leaving their, their little comfort bubbles and their safe zones. They want little hug boxes, and as long as they hear their contemporary adult Christian rock bands and whatever, they're, they're content with it. They think they're doing a good job and that they have nothing to be ashamed of. I believe the purpose of this program isn't to reach Judeo-Christians, per se, but to reach Christian identity identity pastors who are really still Judeo-Christians, but they don't know it. When Christ said, feed my sheep, to Peter, he wasn't talking about, feed my wolves in sheep's clothing. (laughs) We need people that are claiming to be pastors, preachers, any sort of leading position to realize that their their ideologies are far more in line with Judeo-Christians than they are with honest students of identity Christianity. Right. And there are still a lot of identity Christians, not only pastors, who are caught up in Judeo-Christianity, who, who brought these ideas that they've had these ideas with them since they were children in their Methodist churches or their Church of God or whatever, their Catholic churches, and, and they've learned the identity message and they've learned a lot about race and the law, but they still have this Judeo-Christian baggage in, in when it comes to a lot of the details and especially concerning the other races or concerning the Jews themselves. That's why I said earlier, we have to raise the racial consciousness, not, you know, on a a secular level as white nationalists, but because they're going nowhere, basically. But a racial consciousness with a, a spirit of God, that breath of life that is dormant, uh, which is all too common in our people today, a racial consciousness with a spiritual understanding of God's will and purpose for his people. And that's what what we're trying to raise the bar tonight with, with these two ideas that the racial alien was not created by God and that they will eventually be eliminated from the face of the earth. But we need that racial consciousness with the spirit of God to get there. Absolutely. And that goes to every level, no matter who you are. If you are a 
if you are awakened to the truth of Christ, which is a racial message that has not changed from the foundations of the earth, then you must accept that what you have been taught in the past is probably inaccurate on multiple facets. You need to work to change that. You need to uh, spend some time in prayer, and you need to ask humbly for the prayer of others. I know I do. I still work on quite a bit that has been sort of like a, a residue since 2009 when I first learned the truth. Um, it's, it's not going to end throughout your entire life either. You, you just need to keep working at that. There's always some little bit because that's what, let's face it, that's what they're good at. They're good at mental manipulation. There's some little bit that will stick with you that you just have not had to approach in some fashion. And because you haven't touched that, that lays dormant, and eventually you need to confront that. But there's always something that needs to be worked on, and that's why we need to accept that we are not perfect and that Christ is, and that we can pray for his grace to understand that and grasp onto it. And hopefully every scale will fall, uh, but we, we just need to do the best we can and take a humble approach if we are found to be in error when we're discussing something that we shouldn't really be discussing as a leader. Well, every generation has their challenges. It just seems that right now this generation challenges race and it's reaching a crescendo. Everybody, I think, kind of feels it in the air. Something's Got to give one way or another. Well, well, our vision in Christian identity, mine anyway, is is to on an academic level present the information necessary to get all identity Christians on the same page, and that should be our objective in Christian identity. We are in so many different directions. There are so many different. Um, definitions of Christian identity and levels of understanding in Christian identity that we, we have to try to get our own house in order. I'm not saying that that should be our only objective, but it's a very important one to get our own house in order, to get our theology, our study of the Word of God in line with the Word of God, and to present this information to these halfway Judaized identity Christians so that they could evaluate it, and, and if they love God, then they have to conform themselves to the Word of God. It's that simple. But because of the, the, the lack of catechism, well, which is a good thing in a lot of ways. We don't want a catechism, but because of the lack of catechism and, and because of the lack of structure that Christian identity has historically had, it's difficult to get everybody into a, 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 a similar mindset. And, and it's very important that we get them there. We can't have the Elijah ministry unless we have the spirit of Elijah. That's my hope for the future. As, as a, an identity pastor, 
um, my vision is is a, a plan um, that that feeds the sheep along the lines of an Elijah ministry. What did Elijah do? He had a contest between some 400 bell priests with whose God could ignite these bonfires. And just to rub it in, Elijah poured, doused all kinds of water into his wood pile. And the bell priest couldn't do anything to get theirs going. But Elijah, by his faith in God, God acknowledged his faith, and his bonfires erupted in flames. This was so impressive to the people that witnessed this contest that it wasn't Elijah himself that led these Baal priests to the brook Kishon for a permanent baptizing. It was the people themselves. Turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and turning the hearts of their children to the fathers is pure Christian identity to appreciate our heritage, our biblical heritage, and to come to an awakening as to who we are and what our responsibilities are. And if you read the very last phrase of that text, it says, lest we perish. We're compelled to emulate Elijah, lest we perish. That's my vision. We we have to do this. You're absolutely right. We must. And I think the, the one theme that you can see throughout all of the uh, the leaders that we are privy to seeing in the scripture, all of them, they may not have had faith in themselves, but they all had an unswerving faith in our Father to do what needs to be done. And that is something that people that are only halfway there are not going to have. They will not have that unswerving and uncompromising faith because they are going to compromise with the wicked in some other area. If they don't understand that, only our race will be there at the end. If they they want to go with these pet doctrines that are scripturally unfounded, such as uh, relocation to Antarctica or Madagascar or some exotic location, if they want to believe that that's the fate of these mamsers, then they're deluding themselves, and they're going to compromise in other areas as well. Well, well, right. They're just preaching some kind of wishy-washy, watered-down Christianity that that is aimed at hurting the least amount of feelings. Certainly not preaching the truth with love. Well, well, thank you for being here, Seth. 
Thank you for having me. Look forward to hearing the discussion with Matthew. Matthew, are you here? Yes, Bill. Can you hear me? Hello. Yes. Yeah. Good to be here. Hi, Bill. How you doing, oh. Mark? Brethren. Um, well, it's good that, um, you actually made the remark just a bit ago, Bill, concerning, uh, um, Ultimately, you have to have your house in order, and that's kind of what I wanted to touch upon. Um, you know, this is a discussion about the, the vision for Christian identity. And I just, I mean, I will speak from personal experiences, which I usually do, in that I've been a family man now for quite some time. Um, many of you have known me from for a few years anyway, and, and knew that I've been through uh, the death of one wife. And Yahweh has seen fit to bless me with another and yet larger family. And, and when I first came into Christian identity, I, you know, it just had me on fire. I, the, the truth just had me lit up. I wanted to preach to the world. And, and that was kind of my thing anyway. I had, you know, I'd always been in, in search of, of, of truth, so to speak, always trying to find the, the, the reason why there's so much injustice and, and everything like that. But not to digress too far. Um, it's the understanding that in order to properly build the kingdom of heaven, according to the Christian identity understanding of the scripture, which obviously is the only true way of, of viewing scripture, it has to start in your own home. You can't, how can you preach to anybody else anything about the scripture if you're not living it in your own life and impressing these laws of God upon your family and 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 having the family that is spoken of by God that is living by his rules and these are the the natural rules uh, the, the the natural the natural family layout if you can't if you can't um, be that that shining light, which is your, your life and how you behave and act and portray yourself to the rest of your brethren, then, you know, like Paul said, you can't, how can you have a leader in your assembly and, and someone who's going to call themselves a minister if they can't have their own house in order? I just, if it's, it's obvious that the racial understanding of scripture is the only way it, that is the key to understanding every part of scripture. And of course you have to study scripture to under understand all the parts, but that is the key to being able to study scripture. And if you can't look at it through that lens, then no matter anything else is going to bring one part of scripture into contradiction with itself. And that is why, you know, Christ had said about he's the, the, the bedrock and, and you build your house on that bedrock, it's going to remain. And that is, that should be the 
thing that we should stand on. Um, and that if you understand what the truth is and how it relates to everything in our lives, it's so easy to be able to stand your ground against Judeo-Christians, against your brethren, and, and not necessarily against them. And I would say that simply just from the the argumentative and, and debate end of things. But you've got that solid ground to be able to, you know, set your brethren on and have them stand on it and look around and see how solid it is. And let them give the choice, have the choice of whether to or not to stay standing on that rock or, or, you know, start building a sandcastle. It's up to them. Well, you're absolutely right, Matt. Uh, tonight, I think we're just establishing the fact that the enemy will be destroyed. Our personal participation in that destruction is is another angle that we could pursue on another program, but uh, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, that was the first thing out of Christ's mouth when he began his um, three-year mission was repent. And uh, if I may quote 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. You know that's the um, that that's the message, and in, in, in Paul is strong that we can't ever think as a race of of having vengeance and victory until we decide to become obedient to the law of God. Period. As a race, we have to make that decision. I don't know how small a race we have to get before we all make that decision, but that's the that that's. That's the um, teaching of Paul, and, and that's also evident in the Old Testament, that the children of Israel are going to be punished until they choose to be obedient. So once we choose collectively obedience, then our period of punishment will have to end because we turn to God. The... In, 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 in Romans chapter 9, Paul sets the theme with a prayer of hope that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, come to be obedient in Christ. He's not talking about the Edomite Jews in Romans chapters 10 and 11, where he speaks about all Israel being saved and the remnant that, that Yahweh promised would be there. He's talking about his Israelite brethren in Judea. And he says, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the father's sakes. In other words, our kinsmen according to the flesh, who don't bear the correct message of the gospel, they are enemies for a, a they, they are enemies in reference to us, 
even though they are still elect and beloved for the sake of, of the promises to the fathers. So those Christians who are our kin can still be our enemies concerning the gospel because Christ said, he who is not gathering with me scatters. Right. The the biggest challenge, of course, is convincing our brethren that the racial message is part of the law and that it is part of loving God and turning to God and that this was the the message of Christ period this is what he died for and and again that's getting getting our brethren to understand that what i see is something very simple uh, that's that's the biggest problem and i think that is where you know the the vision really needs to be focused you know, there's a, a type of pop theology um, in, in recent times where um, they're saying racism is a sin. Anybody who's been in Christian identity for any length of time can easily debate that contention. Uh, because, first of all, sin is a transgression of the law. I have to say, well, show me the law, you know, where it says... Racism is a sin. So it's things like that where we are well-equipped and we can equip others to answer um, the, uh, the pop theology of our day that uh, is anti-racism, so to speak. Yeah, and, and I would imagine that at this day and time that um, um, these cries of racism and the the fear of the Jew as written about in the New Testament is probably at an all-time high. Yeah. Um, we have things that that true Christians may have to struggle against that we never really had to before. Um, we are being persecuted and martyred for our beliefs. I mean, a prime example would be um, the gentleman from Oregon who was pretty much just assassinated, and that was because he stood up for his Christian beliefs. Um, it's not quite, you know, as depicted either through our histories in our classrooms or even in the churches as, you know, early Christian persecution, um, you know, we don't have the Colosseums where Christians are literally being thrown to lions right now, but they're definitely there in many different proverbial forms. Well, thanks for calling, Matt. You're quite welcome, Bill. We appreciate it. I think we're probably going to... Um close this program and from the looks of Mark's notes we may very well have part two very soon <laughs> <laughs> Dr.
God's Always a pleasure. That, that's the bottom line. God is a racist. The, the, the fact that race exists proves that God is a racist. If he wanted um, all the races to become amalgamated, he would have just made chimeras. <laughs> well, we would all be chimeras. We would all be part kangaroo, part negro, part fox, wolf, sheep, elephant. But we would just, if God wanted the what wanted to create what the Jews wanted to create, we would all look like chimeras. But we would all be created from diverse races, and what when you sleep with somebody, it's just potluck what you're going to get. And and maybe God would be a joker. But we'd all look like we had six legs and tails and three arms and four noses. That's what the Jews are looking to create. That That's what the enemies of God want to create when they want to mix all these races. The fact that race exists proves that God's a racist. His first laws are kind after kind. And, and with that, um, unless Mark has some closing statements, we'll close the program. Well, I just uh, really enjoyed the last two hours. It went by really fast. And... Uh, I'd be honored to uh, continue this discussion on another Saturday. Perhaps next Saturday. We'll see. We'll talk about the schedule during the week. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Seth. I'm sorry we missed Ezra Pound from, from the Christagenia Forum. I guess we just ran too late for him. And hopefully we'll catch him next time. Praise Yahweh and good night.